Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with Hiroshi Kashiwagi. During our conversation, Hiroshi talks about growing up as a Japanese American at the beginning of the 20th century, being forced to move into the Thule Lake internment camp during World War II, and losing and later regaining his American citizenship. Welcome to the show. Today I'm in San Francisco, California with Hiroshi Kashiwagi. Uh, we are going to talk today a little bit about his personal background as a Japanese-American and specifically about his experience in World War II. Uh, Hiroshi, thank you so much for taking, to, taking time to talk to the listeners, and welcome to the show. Welcome. Uh, the first question I wanted to learn is just a little bit about uh, your personal background. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, and, and talk a little bit about what it was like to be an American in what I think was the beginning of the 20th century as a Japanese-American. Right. Uh, I was born in Sacramento, California. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a small town, a rural town, and um, there were quite a few Japanese families in the town. Uh, some of them were owners of ranches, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the orchards were for uh, plums and peaches mm-hmm. and pears. And uh, my father... Uh, when I was about seven, bought a store in town. Mm-hmm. And this was a fish market and a grocery store. And so uh, I walked to school, which was about 10 minutes away. And this uh, made it possible for me to come home for lunch. Mm. So I would walk home and have lunch and walk back. Um there were quite a few Japanese in the school, uh, but uh, I always felt that we were outsiders, mm-hmm. and uh, and um, I don't know. I I didn't feel that I I was part of the American scene, um, although the school was fun and the teachers were fair, especially the principal was very liberal. And I remember when we lived out in the country before we came to town, uh, we would take a bus, which was about four or five miles away. And uh, the problem was going home, I would be involved playing with someone and forget to about the bus. And one time I happened to miss the bus and uh, I felt lost, and I was uh, kind of uh, crying. And uh, so I, one of these kids, you know, saw me and brought me to the principal. And the principal, uh, you know, said that he would drive me home. And so uh, he got one older student to, to show the way. And uh, he drove me home. And my parents were very <laughs> surprised at this because to think that the principal of the school would drive a, a child home. And it was about five miles away. So uh, uh, 
I don't know. That that was one memory that I have of school. Um, Let's talk a little bit. So your your family and your family's background. The do you know the story as to why your family decided to come to the U.S. However many generations before you were born. Well, uh, there was my parents were uh, immigrants, and they my father came first, mm. and I guess two better than him, themselves. Uh, and he had brothers, and I think even the father was already here. Mm. And uh, then he was being the third or fourth son uh, came, and uh, he was involved with all kinds of activities. He was a fisherman and worked, uh, uh, I think he worked on the railroad to mm. start with, and then he worked uh, as a fisherman in Los Angeles, San Pedro, and he did truck farming, and he even had a cafe in L.A. and Sacramento later. And then he uh, sharecropped a, a, an orchard in Loomis where we had moved. And then he bought the store. And since he had been a fisherman, it, you know, he was a fish market, fish peddler. Mm-hmm. And so my mother came as a picture bride so that she had never seen my father and only through photographs. And uh, she she came just before immigration was uh, stopped. I think she came maybe around 1920. Hmm. And uh, so we were at Angel Island recently. But she came through there mm-hmm. and then uh, met my father in San Francisco. And, uh, yeah, that's how it started. I was born about three years later. Mm-hmm. So she and I were 20 years apart. And so uh, at the Angel Island uh, program, I read a, read a piece that I had written about my mother, mm. yeah, because she has spent a few days or a day there. Um, was it a topic of conversation in your household prior to World War II about how Japanese Americans were alienated or felt alienated from the American society at large? Uh, yes, uh, that was always uh, a topic of a conversation in the family. Uh, People, well, my parents and all the father's parents, Issei, first generation, were aware of the discrimination against them. Uh, They were not allowed to become citizens. They weren't allowed to become naturalized. And so they didn't qualify to own land or home. And so the yeah we always heard the fact that there was discrimination mm. and uh, so they were very wary of that yeah let's talk about the beginning of the second world war do you remember that day specifically and if so where were you and 
What do you recall from, from that day? Well, I was two years out of high school and waiting for my brother to graduate, who was a senior, so that I, you know, he was more interested in doing farm work and, and I wasn't. So I was waiting for him to graduate, and, and then December 7th, uh, I, I was on this farm. We were sharecropping, and I don't know, I wrote a story, a poem about the day that I, I was uh, chopping wood left-handed, and that poem, I wanted to show that I was naturally a left-hander, but uh, as in most families, I was converted to being using my right hand. And so there was some confusion. Mm-hmm. You know, even now I, I, I feel that one is o- over the other. And so I think in that poem I was trying to show the confusion of where we were you know, what we were. Were we Americans or were we, you know, for Japan mm-hmm. and so forth? What would you have said on that day? I mean, where where did your allegiance stand or what were your views about the war prior to the attack of Pearl Harbor? Um, my, my allegiance was as an American. And I remember arguing with my father one time because he was, of course, Japanese, Mm. and he followed the progress of the Japanese military where they would go all over Asia, and this would be shown on a map, and Japan would be bright red, and then the the Manchuria, for example, was kind of pink Mm. because at the time uh, they were in Manchuria, Mm -hmm. but they hadn't conquered it. But Korea was part of Japan, so it was bright red. And so my father was following this expansion. And somehow we got into an argument that I was not too concerned about that. And, And then finally I told him, you know, I am an American, so I, I shouldn't be interested in that. And he realized what I was trying to say. Mm. Yes. Mm. And so after the Second World War starts and Japan and America declare their war against one another, t- walk me through the steps of what you remember in terms of the changes in your life and your civil liberties. How did that roll out, and when did the first internment camps actually begin? Um, the order to move came in February of 1942. Mm. So we moved around, I think it was around May, and we first went to a temporary camp, and uh, then we were transferred to a more permanent camp in Tule Lake, which is in the northern part of California, mm-hmm. near the Oregon border. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, uh, uh, camp was, uh, well, thinking back, uh, I feel that 
I didn't know enough to to protest. Yeah. Uh, I was only concerned about in the order that came down and to to comply with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, because my father was not present, he become ill and he was in in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it all fell on to my mother and myself to settle the, our affairs and to pack up and to 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 leave. Mm-hmm. So um it was un- not until later that I would think about my civil rights. Right. So you did, was it the case that you received a letter in the mail saying that by a certain day you need to vacate your family home for whatever reason? And what, what was the reason that was given as to why it was required of you to leave your residence to go to a camp? Well, post, you know, posters were all over the place. Right. Yeah. So it said all persons of Japanese ancestries were ordered out of this certain area. And uh, the reason was that they considered us as the enemy, Japanese, and uh, and subject to maybe acts of treason or things. And so it was uh, a military necessity Mm -hmm. that we were being moved. But similar such... Orders were not given to German American uh, ancestries from Germ- from Germany, as I understand it. Uh, no, not for mass removal. Mm-hmm. Yes, some some Germans were picked up, yeah. but uh, many of the Japanese uh, aliens were picked up also, mm-hmm. thousands, in fact. So, along with the Germans and the Italians. Mm-hmm. But these were all select people, right. leaders. Right. Yeah. Um, so what were the conditions like in the camp? So finally you leave your house and you get to the place, which is a permanent camp. What's a day in the life of someone who's in an internment camp look like? Well, the thing, one thing was the, the lack of privacy. And to get used to living with strangers mm. And we were all Japanese, but we were all strangers. Mm-hmm. We hadn't uh, only very close friends would come to our house, but these were all people that you know we we didn't know, mm-hmm. and and everything was communal, so that we had to live closely and together, and uh, and the lack of privacy. And of course, the barracks were not the best. It was the, when the wind blew, the dust would come in, and uh, and the bathroom facilities were well. Again, there was no privacy, and mm. there was communal bathing and so forth. Mm. And also, our meals were communal. So, was each family assigned their own? Room, or did everyone live in in a large, as you mentioned, communal area with like bunk beds where people had to? They were just stacking people up and putting them into a very close confines. Or what, well, did, what did the rooms look like where you had? To well, live? it was close confine, um, but we had units for families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in our family there were uh, 
four of us. Mm-hmm. So we had one one so-called apartment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it, it was just a room, and there were cots, four cots, and that was about it. And there was a stove in the middle of the, the room. Yeah. Yeah. Was the understanding that you would be assigned to be there until the end of the war, that it would be you, you were required to be in the internment camp until the war was over, or did you know, not know when the end would come? We didn't know, and we weren't told, so no. Until they let us go, you know, say you could go, I guess. Were there any protests? You mentioned that it wasn't until you were a little older that you considered the, the idea that maybe you would have protested or could have, could have protested. Were there any mass movements by Japanese Americans protesting what was happening to them? Well, the actual movement, hmm. there were some protests. Uh, people like uh, Gordon Hirabayashi, who refused to go to the camps, and then uh, several others. Um, but um, my protest began when they issued a uh, loyalty uh, questionnaire, mm-hmm. registration it was called, and they asked us if we would be willing to serve in the military, and, uh, and then the other was would we forswear our allegiance to Japan, and, you know, to both, it would be negative for 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 me, mm. but you know it, it was kind of outrageous to 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 be faced with this kind of questioning, when you know all I thought was that I was an American, and so my decision was not to comply, not to commit myself. Mm. And uh, so, and then they would uh, hold hearings and 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 make sure that we commit ourselves to being no to the questions. So we became no nos, even though we never registered when it was asked, and uh, so that we are considered no nos. And no nos were. Categorized as disloyal Americans, mm-hmm. and so we were sent to Tule Lake. I mean, we were already there, mm-hmm. so they held us back there. And then those others who were no nos in the other camps were sent over to Tule Lake. Mm-hmm. So, be- because the Tule Lake camp became a segregation so called center for those who had. And become no nos. And this is during the war. You're asked to fill out this questionnaire. Oh right? yes, it was during the war. If you would have said yes to both of those questions, what would the difference have been in terms of what you were then allowed to do? Would they have allowed you to leave the camp, or what? Would they have forced you to become a part of the military? Uh, you'd be eligible for the military. Uh, the it started with the army mm-hmm. trying to recruit volunteers for a special unit. And then the authority, the camp authorities, just took up that same questionnaire mm-hmm. and forced it on all of us. And so if one said yes and 
you had to say yes to both questions, then you were released to to go outside. And, but then, of course, you had to they, you had to be sure that you had cer- certain amount of money and and people that you can uh, well rely on. Yeah, so that you you be in a safe area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, though, and then some of them were sent to other camps, mm-hmm. and uh, and then of course we were held back. What uh, was the treatment like, and how did the treatment change after you filled out no no after you became one of the no no men? Uh, treatment. Were you treated more poorly? Was the food quality worse? Did you no, have no, it wasn't. The, well, the, they claimed that there were food was was poor, poor. But I don't know. I didn't see much difference. Uh, the, they became more crowded because the more people came in, mm-hmm. and they had to build new sections mm-hmm. to accommodate the new new arrivals. Uh, it was about, I think it was about 15,000, and it became 18,000. Hmm. And so, yeah, it, there was, uh, and then, of course, people coming from other other camps felt that they they missed out on jobs, and, um, you know, they were taking over uh, apartments that had already been lived in by previous occupants. So there was a lot of... It took about half a year to for us to get used to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was not a, a pleasant situation. And just to clarify the year, so you filled out No, No at the end of the war in 45, or was this earlier than that? No, this was earlier. This was uh, in 1943. Okay. Yeah. The, the registration order was in February of 1943. Yes. So after the war is over, what happens to you? Is that the time at which you're allowed to finally leave the camp and go back well, to live out your, your own no, life? No, there's another... Uh, uh, situation. Uh, while we were in this segregation, there were many factions within within the camp, and there was one very militant uh, pro-Japanese group, and then there were those of us who were moderate, mm-hmm. and they, we were called fence-sitters. <laughs> and then there were, you know, because of families, there were differences in the family within each of the families, so we had problems because of these different factions. Right. Yeah, so um, um, and and of course the pro-Japan group uh, had declared themselves to be to go to Japan after the war. And there were Japanese language schools, mm. and there were uh, exercises, you know, to prepare themselves for for something. When they got to Japan, they, they had to study about the emperor and the Japanese military system. 
And so, and then they were trying to convince others to join them. Right. And so there was a lot of uh, friction and problems. And some of this was encouraged by the administration. Uh, they wanted to get rid of all the, the disloyal pro, so-called pro-Japanese. And um, so, yeah, there were many many pressures from mm. different sides. And uh, the pro-Japanese group uh, requested that they get, uh, renounce their citizenship, U.S. citizenship, and because they were going to Japan anyway. And they put pressure on the rest of the group to join them. And so a lot of us who didn't, of course, didn't believe that, were, were influenced to follow. Hmm. And so I ended up without my citizenship. And so which, you, you regarded yourself as being part of the moderate section. Yeah. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so the administration was encouraging people in either of those two sections to denounce America and give up their citizenship, which eventually is sounds like is what happened with you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I had no desire to do that, and yet I found myself doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I have regrets about it. And uh, very soon after, I realized what a big mistake I made. Um, there were others who felt the same way, that they had been influenced by others. Uh, we formed a group to recover our citizenship. And uh, and then we hired an attorney who was very sympathetic. and But then uh, the uh, Mr. Collins, Wayne M. Collins, a civil rights attorney from San Francisco, worked on our case, and it took him 20 years to, to re, re, you know, <laughs> make us Americans again. Yeah. Did you find that while you were in the camp that people who may have been rather moderate when they started were radicalized because of the fact that they were being forced to be in an internment camp? Did people become more radical? Yes. Um, we try to often blame the people who were radicals and who were pro-Japan and... Uh, who tried to influence the rest of the camp. But they were protesting mm. the treatment that we as Americans mm. uh, got from the government. Mm. So, yes. What was the decision, when you made the decision to to give up your citizenship, what do you think happened there? Why, why did you make that decision, and what sort of pressure was the government applying to you to try to make you make that decision? Well, first of all, they passed this law, which allowed us to do that, and this had not been done before. Mm. But I, the government wanted to get rid of what they thought were disloyal Japanese and pro-Japanese, and some of them requested this, but um, they didn't stop it in any way. They, when we had our hearing, they, they s s wanted to make sure 
that that is what we we really wanted. And most of us who went to the hearing, uh, we answered in uh, wrote answers. We had heard about the questions, and we were coached in a way um, how to reply. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was not really our real feelings. Yeah, you had been told essentially what to say. It sounds like right. Okay. Yeah, I mean through you know people who whom you met and talked about and so forth mm-hmm. yeah so in the 20 year period between when you lost your citizenship and you got it back yeah what did you do were were you still in the united states and if so how did you how were you allowed to stay and how did you find work and live your life um well the war was over they wanted to close the camps mm-hmm. and uh They released us, yeah. So we came out, and we tried to resume our lives. And um, I worked about a year and a half and then went went to school. I uh, moved from my hometown and went to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. where no one knew me. Yeah, <laughs> because there was a problem. There was a stigma of having been in this disloyal camp. And others who had said yes, yes, and had left the camp were back earlier before we were. They thought that we had caused a lot of trouble and we were disloyal and discredited the community and Mm -hmm. so forth. So we had to face that. Mm -hmm. And most of us tried to escape by moving away from hometowns where people knew us mm-hmm. or we didn't talk about it and uh, and then went about our way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there an attempt because technically you had lost your citizenship to deport people who had gone through the process of, of giving up their American citizenship back to Japan? Yes, many were deported, yes. Uh-huh. Were you fearful that that would happen to you as well? Uh, it it was it would have happened had not the attorney come in and mm-hmm. stop stop the deportation. So yeah, I was saved then. Talk yeah. about how you met Mr. Collins and what that meeting was like and how he influenced the trajectory of your life. Um, what Mr. Collins had heard about trouble at Tule Lake, uh, there was a stockade where people were kept for no reason that they knew, and uh, the inhuman treatment there. So he wanted to to check it out and to see that they were released. And, and then he heard about our case, where we had renounced our citizenship and then realized that we had made a mistake. So, uh, yeah, he he listened to our situation. And uh, it was very strange to me because we hadn't seen or been close to a non-Japanese. And here was this man, obviously very 
Caucasian, and speaking of smoking <laughs> like a fiend, <laughs> and concerned about us and telling us that you had done no wrong. It's all the government's fault. And, and so, you know, he gave us a lot of hope. And uh, so we asked him, would he help us out and be our attorney? No attorney would take the case. And he agreed. And, uh, and then other cases joined the group because mm. the other attorneys didn't want to touch, touch the, mm. the case. So, well, yeah, that's the way it was. He really a, a real individual who believed that we were done wrong mm. and uh, that uh, the government had, you know, broken the promises made in the Constitution. Mm. It's been almost a generation or two since you got your citizenship back and you've lived an entire life, it seems, in the U.S. What's your big lesson or what are the, the major, when you think back about your experience in World War II, what, what lessons have you drawn from it? How can America learn from that experience and improve in the future based upon what happened? Well, we have to be always uh, wary uh, that things like that could happen easily. Uh, it was based upon uh, war hysteria as well as racism and and the way that some politicians felt. And so uh, we, we have to be watchful uh, as citizens uh, that uh, be not happen again, yes. Last question I want to ask you is, when you look at America today, and it seems like the major concern, the major source of war hysteria in this country is the war on terror. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee that it's possible that a situation in a context like you went through could also potentially be applicable to certain Muslim Americans or some other minority in the U.S.? Or do you think we've learned enough by now to know that we've committed these acts in the past and that we're a better country now than, than we were then? No, I, I don't know. I hate to say this, but I think it could easily happen again. Uh, so many people don't know what happened. It's amazing that I've spoken to different groups and they're hearing it almost for the first time, that this had happened, and how could it? And so, I don't know. I think it, it's it's kind of hard whenever someone is a little different from everyone else. That uh, it it's easy to to blame them for things. Yeah. Well, Hiroshi, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story with the listeners. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. 